From the bowling alley in Daniel Plainview's mansion, it's the IGN DigiGuys. Please welcome two men who were fired by Ryan Bingham, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. Ryan Bingham, the Oscar-winning songwriter from uh, Crazy Heart. Corey? That was written by Jason Croons. Uh, He's drinking your milkshake as we speak. Which is funny because Ryan Bingham is a crooner. Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Now, we saw Ryan Bingham perform live. We did, but that's this, <laughs> this is the other Ryan Bingham. The, the, the references to the George Clooney character, Ryan Bingham, from up in the oh. air. See, which confused everybody because it was all the same year. There was a character, Ryan Bingham. The actor of whom was Oscar nominated, and then there was a movie that had songs by Ryan Bingham, who was also Oscar nominated. That is true. Uh, Wait, before we start, yes, b- before you start the way you always start, yes. which is with DVDs, no one cares about. <laughs> I have to do two things. What do you have one to do? is I have to turn off the air conditioning. Okay, because it might be loud. It, it, the recording might be picking sure, it up. Sure, whatever. Also, I need to get you the latest in my my uh, my cavalcade oh. of cookies. No, 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 no. I have two of these cookies left. I have two left. I, I froze the rest of them. And you're going to like this cookie so much, you're going to ask for the second one. That's why I have two. Okay. So same, go. F- same flavor? No. The, no. You know what? No. It is not the same flavor. It is a different cookie. Now, you go talk about something, and I'm going to go turn the air conditioner off and go get you a cookie and, because <laughs> you're going to love it. Well, very good. I'll talk about exploitation titles because we've got a bunch of them. Uh, you know what? This is all kind of exploitation-y stuff. There's a terrific... Everybody, anybody who's listened to this podcast for any period of time knows that I absolutely love Hong Kong films and kung fu films. Phase 4 uh, came out with a documentary, Films of Fury, the Kung Fu Movie Movie. This is by Rick Myers, and I'm not the biggest fan of Rick Myers. I've got to be honest. Uh, Rick Myers... I, I, I've never met Rick Myers. I have orbited him over the years. We, we know a lot of the same people, and we bump into... Uh, a lot of the same people, and, and he's a bit of a self-promotional whore, I should say. But nonetheless, he does kind of know his stuff. And uh, it's not a great film, but it's kind of nice to see a lot of the... Uh, it's sort of nice to, to, to revisit this stuff. And um, it's okay. It's fine. Uh, if, you, if you love this genre, it's not going to be the end-all, be-all movie of, uh, about martial arts films and about kung fu films. But it's a nice addition to the, uh, to the compendium. Um, much more significant is the blood-drenched double feature from Something Weird video. Now, Something Weird, and this is all distributed through Image, but the Something Weird library is one that I have some experience with because when Ray Green and I made Schlock all those years ago, about a decade ago now, I guess it is, um, uh, Something Weird was uh, very kind and cut us a great deal, and we were able to use a lot of footage from their library. They are the single largest library of exploitation films from the 50s and 60s and even the 70s in existence, and it's, it is the definitive exploitation library. And this blood-drenched double feature features two of the original gore classics from Herschel Gordon Lewis. Now, Herschel Gordon Lewis was, of course, a uh, nudie cutie director for uh, a number of years before he decided, uh, along with David Friedman, to create the gore film. And uh, Blood Feast was the first one of those. The two that kind of complement that is The Wizard of Gore and The Gore Gore Girls. Notice how the word gore appears there. Uh, really, this is just cheesy stuff. Not, not nearly as shocking as it used to be. The Wizard of Gore is a bit of a surreal kind of a, uh, an approach. It's, it's a little bit weird um, in kind of a good way. So I would say The Wizard of Gore is worth checking out if you don't mind 
the cheesy uh, the cheesy retro gore stuff. But um, the gore, her- you know, the gore gore girls features Henny uh, Youngman. Yeah. Features Henny Youngman. I know. He's in the gore gore. I mean, how cheesy can you get? It's pretty cheesy. Yes. Uh, also from Synapse, who releases a lot of this kind of stuff as well, they have uh, you know they've done these great Forty Second Street uh, Forever DVDs for a long time, featuring great trailers for just psychotic exploitation films and weird cult films, and they have finally brought out Forty Second Forty Second Street Forever on Blu-ray, which is even better because the colors are sharper. And a, the one thing about a lot of these movies is that the trailers were garish in their use of color. Uh, more so than the movies, actually. I'm not quite sure why the trailers looked so freakish in the way that they were printed. It could have been the stock that was being used, but it really, really manifests itself on Blu-ray. So, uh, And this is a great thing to throw on the back of a party, just all these funky trailers. Uh, I love these. I remember Sugar, these. And Sugar Hill, yep. L.A. Woman, uh, Chained Heat, Welcome Home, Brother Charles, great. Were- Werewolves on Wheels, and the, there's, the there's, Pink Angels. I mean, it's awesome stuff. And there's there's volumes of these. Oh, yeah, a number of volumes. And this is the original one on Blu-ray. So the others are going to be coming out on Blu-ray as well. So hold off on buying any of the others on, on DVD. 42nd Street Forever it's great. is really fun stuff. It's, it's great. great. You know what? You're right. It's great for a Halloween party. You throw it in on a loop. Oh, people just totally. love it. It's it's like three hours of stuff, more than three hours. It just goes on and on and on, and people will laugh, and you don't have to pay attention to the plots, and you can. It's just it's a lot of fun. Uh, something weird also come, has a DVD that they have released, a two DVD set called Strip Strip Hooray, and uh, this is going back to kind of grindhouse burlesque movies, uh, which. It's, you know, this isn't great stuff, but if you're, again, a fan of the era and you kind of, you know, have a yearning for, for burlesque kitsch, it's kind of weird because burlesque vanished when Nudie Cuties came in. They popped burlesque, you know, all the burlesque theaters became adult theaters. Uh, but anyway, you know, if these movies mean anything to you, definitely check it out. It's not titillating. Don't expect it to be titillating. Uh, it's just l- historically significant. The movies include Midnight uh, Frolics, Everybody's Girl. French Follies, B-Girl Rhapsody, The ABCs of Love, which is probably the most interesting film here, and uh, A Night in Hollywood. And uh, all of this stuff is just completely negligible, but uh, from a standpoint of exploitation history, you know, it has its place. Uh, You know, there's this very bizarre movie here. This is only significant because of Thor being in uh, The Avengers, but there's this bizarre movie that uh, when this is a new movie this isn't like anything from the 50s or 60s or 70s this is a new movie that's been released from VCI and the only reason i can imagine it's it's been released is because of the avengers uh it's called thor at the bus stop mark thor at the bus stop i don't get it y- you know what um it, it's not good uh, it, loaded with extras as these films often are, because the people who make them are so thrilled to finally be getting a DVD deal, and I speak from experience here, that they just they, they throw everything on here. There's a short film that's horrible, a making of documentary, a commentary, uh, you know, it's all this, all, they just load it up. But uh, it's this weird kind of kitschy, low-budget comedy uh, in which, you know, the Norse Thor, god of thunder... Thor is, he's taking the bus through the neighborhood so on his stupid. way to this big fight where he's, he's going to die. It's just dumb. Yes, it is. It really is. But, you know, if, if you want to make people laugh with some kind of a takeoff on Thor. And then uh, lastly, uh, from the Jezebel collection, we're going to have some other Jezebel titles we're going to mention later, but this is the, uh, the only exploitation-y one here. The Jezebel uh, library is now being released by Kino Lorber. 
And uh, there's a keynote, a Jezebel double feature here of the films Primitive London and London in the Raw. And uh, this goes to, this is kind of what, you know, Euro exploitation. We've all heard of Ozploitation, which is the stuff that was going on in Australia at the time. And Japan had their own exploitation stuff. And obviously the Giallo films from Italy. Everybody kind of had their own little underground cinema in the 1960s. These are from 1964 and 65. And they are the, uh, the, the Austin Powersy version of the burlesque films that I just mentioned. Uh, so, um, again, not good in any way whatsoever, but, it, you know, it, it just a weird little taste of uh, UK kits from the 1960s, and uh, especially London in the Raw, which is m- kind of a Mondo film. It's a, more of a documentary than anything else. Um, you know, London was never really like this, but sure, why not? Let, let's get into the seamy side of London in the 60s. Austin Powers would, right? You know, speaking of a taste of things, Wade... You're about to taste something that will be an explosion in your mouth. Oh, gosh, Mark. We just what? We just sat through Men in Black 3. I, yes, we did. And I've got a screaming headache. No, you have an appetite. You mm. want my new thumbprint cookie. Is there, like, peanut butter in this? Yes. Oh, gosh. You love peanut butter. You know, peanut butter break... Peanuts make me break out. I'm just warning you. So what? Who cares? Okay. I feel like Woody Allen saying, Peanut, peanuts make me break out. So this is a, a, a this is peanut butter dough, and it's a, a chocolate ganache thumbprint in the middle. It's a thumbprint cookie. You mean your thumb touched this? Oh, yeah. Not just my thumb. <laughs> Where's that thumb been? All right. Here it goes. Jeez. Pe- people, people are enjoying me eating your cookies on the yes. show. They enjoy it more I than us talking about Blu-rays. I, well, you know what? Because you're talking Blu-ray's about the crappiest Murray. Blu-rays. Blu-ray's Murray. Make way to eat a cookie. All right. Wade is go. now eating a cookie. This is truly the moment you've all been waiting for. All I care about is redeeming myself from last week's cookie, which was terrible. Now, this cookie is very good. I think this is a good cookie. Now, Wade of <laughs> Yeah, that's disgusting. <laughs> Come on, tell me that's not better than last I'm taking, week. I'm taking a little drink of water here. I have to, you know, rinse the palate. <laughs> it, it was definitely a good week for that cookie. Tell me that's not better than last week's cookie. Well, last week's cookie was a cow patty. I know it was terrible. It was just, it was like it was, it was like dreadful. it was like vaguely chocolate flavored styrofoam. It, I know, was, it was terrible. I got now I got stale this, styrofoam. No, I got this recipe from a Sir Latab book. Mm-hmm. Uh, a bakery. I like Sir Latab. Well, there you go. Nice you place. Know, they, that's true. I got the recipe from um, a Sir Latab book. Yeah, this is good. Thank you very this much. This is good. Thank you. Yeah, it's very nice. It's the, the, the chocolate. Cookie. The chocolate is a, it's very nice chocolate in the middle. I don't know where you got it from, but you did a good job. It's 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 ganache. It's uh, you know, you, you make ganache. You know, you buy you buy a bar of chocolate, you mm-hmm. break it up into pieces, put it in a medium bowl, take two cups of cream, boil the cream, and then you pour the cream into the medium bowl holding the pieces of uh, of, of chocolate bar, and then you you let that sit for about a minute, and then you take a whisk. And you whisk the well, cream ta- into th- the chocolate. This tastes, this ganache tastes good. Why, why do people weep and wail when they eat this? Huh? You know, they'll be weeping and wailing and ganaching of teeth. <sighs> Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. The shortest show ever. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. G- ganache, is, 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 ganache is great. First of all, it's very easy to make. Mm-hmm. People think it's exotic. Ooh, ganache. Wow. But it has two ingredients. A chocolate bar you get from the store and some cream. That's all it has. Now, I'm just saying, Wade, I have another one of those with your name on it because I knew you'd like it. Yeah, it was good. So yeah. if you'd like another one, 
I do have one with your name on it. A different cookie, though. No, it's the same. It's a, a thumbprint cookie. With the with the ganache? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Weep and wail me. It's it, see, ladies and gentlemen, yeah. look at that. See? I, I have redeemed myself from last week. Do it. I will get you that cookie. Get me that cookie, and I'll, I'll, I'll knock out a few more films. Now, the like rest of the cookies, uh, I, I froze. I, I have some more. Okay. But I, you're, not getting the one, you're not getting those. You are getting the two that I have earmarked for you. Fine. So be it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we got a few uh, animated things here. And um, as I digest that cookie, um, Tom and Jerry around the world. You know, I, I just want them to release all the original Tom and Jerry films, all the original Tom and Jerry shorts. And uh, Tom and, and Jerry's in, lame. In Tom one, and Jerry, lame. They won some Oscars. Never liked them. Anyway. Don't get it. Yeah, well. And also the new Tom and Jerry's. And when I say new at this point, we're talking like the last 15 years worth of Tom yes. and Jerry's are all terrible. Yes, true. Very much so. Well, uh, this stuff is predominantly new, and uh, I, I can't say I'm, I'm enamored of most of it, but, uh, you know, it, at least it's Tom and Jerry for a certain generation. It, it, it has been worse. Tom and Jerry have gone through a lot of iterations, and the stuff that, the, that they had in the 80s, you got to admit, the 80s were the worst decade for Tom and Jerry. The eighties were the eighties was 80s, a bad decade for a lot of animation. The eighties, Tom and Jerry, they don't even chase each other. They're like buddies. They like do stuff together. It's stupid. It's that, like what, that, what's the, that what's like the point? itchy and scratchy being friends. It just it makes no sense. You watch it and you just go, how is this in any way Tom and Jerry? Why not just call them, you know, Schmitz and Frodo? Why why do we it's just it's just stupid. But anyway. Uh, Tom and Jerry around the world, twenty two uh, little cartoons, twenty two shorts here, which are they're fine. I mean, not you know. This isn't the classic Oscar-winning stuff, but it'll do if if you need your fix. Um, and then uh, Thundercats is uh, season one, book two. I just you know you know right now somebody is dreaming of a of a, of a live-action Thundercats movie. Well, the one hundred and seventy-five million dollars on a Thundercats movie. Let's hope not, because I want to call attention to something here. Thundercats, we've talked about before. I, I, I don't get it. It's like, it's like the the you know take the Avengers version of uh, the Broadway show Cats. I, I kind of don't get it. They're like cat people and they're heroes. And they there was a very funny Onion story with the headline: Michael Bay signs fifty million dollar deal to screw up Thundercats. <laughs> That's brilliant. In the largest deal ever made to crap out a movie, Warner Brothers and director Michael Bay announced a landmark $50 million agreement this week to monumentally screw up Thundercats. That was the uh, Onion article. That's hysterical. That's really funny. That's very, I couldn't very funny. be more excited to completely screw up this movie, said Bay. I guess the, I guess Masters of the Universe might even be another <laughs> example uh, Thundercats is a – this is a quote from quote-unquote Michael Bay. Thundercats has a great story and daring characters, <laughs> action, adventure, space travel, and fantasy. It will be an honor to run it into the ground. <laughs> I, will, I will use every directorial tool I have to suck the very life and charm out of this beloved cartoon. I won't rest until I get every last scene exactly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I love the onion. Um, now, Mark, here, here's the reason I bring this up. Because Americans, when, when you say to American animators, <laughs> come, come on, get, get, back, get back on track here. Uh, when funny. you say to American animators, oh, come on, people as cats, they think, I know, heroes, superheroes. They think Thundercats. 
American animators. If you say to Japanese animators, people, cats, where do their minds go? Cat Planet Cuties. Darn right. <laughs> you know, I, and I'll tell you, I've I I have been to Japan. I I've been I spent I've been to Japan. I've been I've been to their convenience stores where in the back they have all that sexual theme manga you stuff. Uh, they are a crazy society. This is and and uh, from Thundercats to Cat Planet Cuties. It's all about the cats and the animated cats today. Now this is a Blu-ray DVD combo pack. 12 tail-twitching episodes, plus one perfectly, perfectly playful OVA. Uh, that whole OVA thing. I, I Anyway, on, on, completely back to this. This is from Funimation. When I got this, I looked at this. I've never heard of Cat Planet Cuties before, but the, the, the cover of the thing has this. It was a series this, of novels. I mean, it's one of those Japanese novel series that it's like it's... Uh, oh, Adorably cute-looking, big-eyed anime girl with long red hair. The ears of a cat... She's wearing, like, stockings, and you can see a little bit of her thigh, and she's got enormous breasts. And the whole thing is just clearly so erotic and, and provocative. And I That's thought, what, what all is going Japanese on here? Is. So before I even watched any of this, I, I emailed Charles Solomon, our good friend Charles Solomon, who is the animation expert, who's written, you know, books on uh, Beauty and the Beast and the history of Pixar and everything. Charles is, uh, and I are on the radio every so often. And I, I said, Charles, seriously, dude, Cat Planet Cuties, please explain. And he said, uh, yeah, someday someone's going to have to write a thesis about why the Japanese uh, find women with cat ears so adorable. And and I said, Charles, it's not the cat ears. Um, it's, it's the lingerie and the nudity. Um, Mark, I, this comic book comes with the thing. I show you this picture. Please describe what I'm showing to you. At, look at where the gun is. <laughs> you know, the, no, uh, the, the Japanese are... And in- by the way, it's totally indicative. All that comic book is indicative of the show. I, you, you pop this thing in and you, you, it takes about five seconds to go, oh, this ain't for kids. Yeah, no, uh, much of Japanese manga and much of Japanese animation is not for kids. They're a very strange society because they... Their their fetishes it. are unique to themselves, and they all <laughs> and you know what, and they all hide in plain sight. Oh, they all hide in plain sight. This stuff is way is out there for you to buy at convenience stores and bookstores all it's around just, Japan, and yet somehow they somehow like these are it, naked and be, bikini clad yes. women who have cat well, ears at, and tails. Yes. Is this like some Playboy Bunny type weird thing? What the hell is they, this fetish? This is bizarre. They think it's cute. They I think guess. it's adorable. I'm sure. Th- this is how they sexualize their women. Okay. More power to you. Jeez. Cat Planet Cutie. I just, I, Japan never ceases to amaze me. They are, you know what? I, I telling you. And They're then crazy. on the eve of Madagascar 3, which for some reason was all the rage at the uh, Cannes Film Festival recently. I know. It was getting, the, I, you know what? I just got the invite. I trashed it. I don't want to see Madagascar 3. I, I hated Madagascar 1. I didn't even see the scene Although, number 2. What's the point? You know who co-wrote 3? <sighs> Noah Bumbach. Oh, joy. He'll, he'll, he'll instill gold. What, are we going to have like a, like, a, like a neurotic Jewish penguin? Will that, will that save the franchise? No, it's a neurotic Jewish lemur. Oh, there we go. Uh, well, anyway, the, because of Madagascar, we keep getting these Madagascarian knockoff things. And uh, another one of them is The Jungle Bunch, the movie, which uh, for some reason John Lithgow signed on to because he's just increasingly desperate in his career. Uh, it's been straight downhill ever since uh, the end of uh, Third Rock. But anyway, this is uh, a, 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 the story of a penguin raised in the jungle. 
done. Do you need to know anything else? It's it's a total Madagascar knockoff. Um, they also have a bunch of little short films on here, but it's it it really is just strictly for the very very super young who won't realize that what they're watching is in some is in no way related to Madagascar. Wait, that was so brilliant that you earned yourself another cookie. Thank you. And then the last animated thing before we finally get into feature films is uh, Nickelodeon's Ah Real Monsters season two. Uh, this is like a Monsters Inc. show where it's yeah. uh, it's it's all about monsters who are going to school to learn to become monsters. Well, this is from Shout Factory, and Shout is usually an indicator that it's pretty good. And uh, I don't particularly like any of these. Uh, I don't particularly think this series is as smart as a lot of other people do, but I do think the animation is just tweaked enough to be admirable. So. You know, you can enjoy how kind of perverse it is in that Crick Falusi sort of way. Well, that's that that's that Klasky Coop, Coop Show. Shupo. Shupo yeah. company. They do lots of tweaked animation like SpongeBob. Starting all the way, all the way back to Rugrats, they, they but tweaked. But it, Crick Falusi is the guy who introduced tweaked, and then Klasky Shupo got on the bandwagon. Well, it's funny because, because they do have in common that the animation is tweaked. But mm. what Chris Falusi did is he made... He made the characters and the music and the mm-hmm. presentation and mm-hmm. the directing and the, all of that is just not just tweaked. It is Very drug in, it is drug induced. Uh huh. You know, it's great stuff. Mm-hmm. Ren, Ren and Stimpy. Very true. That was Chris Falusi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Very true. Is that true, Wade? Mm-hmm. Yes, did, you, did you have cookie in your mouth? No, I have a cookie in my mouth. I, I feel totally vindicated after mm-hmm. last week. Thank you. Uh, Wade, the big uh, there's a couple of decent uh, DVD or Blu-ray releases this week. And when I say decent, I mean you know notable titles. I'm yeah. not saying good movies. No. I'm just saying notable titles. Yeah. Uh, first is uh, this means war, starring uh, two uh, up and coming uh, actors who should know better. Uh, Chris Pine and Tom Hardy. Gosh, I hated this movie. This was a terrible movie, and it also co-starred Reese Witherspoon, who's uh, got to make better choices, because yeah. this is terrible. Uh, this was directed by McGee, and I guess for those hoping this was a return to form for him, I'm just going to say he never had a form, <laughs> so there's nothing to return to. This, this is, this is, you know what this is? This is basically a remake of Tequila Sunrise, mixed with every bad action genre franchise from the 80s. It's like, it's like... It's like a what would be a dumb spy film from the eighties. It, it's like it's like Die Hard meets some kind of oh it it, it it's like Die Hard meets uh, uh, True Lies meets uh, uh, Tequila Sunrise. There you go. How's that? <laughs> this is just a. It's terrible. It's, it, this is just a loud and insultingly bad, uh, poorly structured, not a whole lot of action, just terrible movie. This was a misbegotten film. It, 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 it is it is that classic love triangle thing from Tequila Sunrise, except mixed with the true lies angle, which is you got these two studly young spies played by Chris Pine and uh, our, our Tom Hardy, Tom Hardy, our future Mad Max Four. Which, by the way, he just said it can. Tom Hardy was was being interviewed at Cannes. He goes, "Yeah, I have no idea when Mad Max Four will happen. I'm, yeah. I'm I'm signed on, but they just keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it." Do you know when the first announcement of Fury Road was? It was like two three years ago. Two thousand three. <laughs> Nine years ago. It's like, come on, George. Get on with it already. Well, supposedly they were supposed to shoot last year, but I guess there were rains in the whatever, whatever yeah, part and, of Australia and, and he wanted to it shoot didn't, it. It didn't look desolate anymore. Right. So Tom Hardy, who I just I love, he I, I got to say, he doesn't quite have the uh, that light touch for comedy. No. 
but I think he's great. I just I love the fact that a guy like him is around because he's a very intense actor. Two spies going for the same woman, but they're not going to tell her that they're spies. That's right, they're not. Ooh, what a novel concept. Uh, anyway, this is really terrible stuff. There's a whole lot of uh, special features on it, but who cares because the movie sucks. Oh, it's just dreadful. It really is. Uh, you know what's pretty great this week, i got to say, as long as we're talking about 80s action films, and I can't recommend the whole thing, but they did finally come out with the Lethal Weapon collection on Blu-ray which includes gobs and gobs and gobs of extras, including brand-new behind-the-scenes uh, documentaries and featurettes. And uh, that's fine. Um, it, it, the, none of that stuff is... the retro. The, the, these are kind of a look-back, the featurettes are. And none of them are really that great because, frankly, behind-the-scenes of the Lethal Weapon movies isn't that enthralling. Um, it, I would recommend this only if you feel like Lethal Weapon 3 and Lethal Weapon 4 are just so awesome, wicked, compelling that you cannot do without them. But uh, really, honestly, Lethal Weapon 1 is a good film. I think Lethal Weapon 2 is a terrific film. And um, that's it. Then the, then the franchise basically ends. Now, there are also a lot of people out there who think, what the hell, Mel Gibson, he's like a, like a racist Nazi psychopath guy now with mental brain chemistry issues. Why would I want to have anything to do with him? Well, because that's essentially the character he plays here. In, in, He's crazy. You know, in, 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 in Rig, Lethal... Rig, the character of Riggs is probably the closest thing that you're ever going to get to the real Mel Gibson on film. Well, especially Lethal Weapon 1. And, and, yeah. and the thing is that in Lethal Weapon 1... He was dangerously nuts, but yeah. in the other one, he's, in the other ones, he becomes sort of like, you know, endearingly dangerous. I have to say that one of my one of my all time favorite moments in movies. Here's the thing that that drives me nuts with American movies. American movies have no problem being ridiculously violent. Like even Men in Black Three. Were you not amazed at how violent that movie is for PG thirteen film? Well, yeah, I mean, they, they, they have pretty, a ray gun and aliens just blow up into just... But, like, you know, the Jermaine, the, the, the uh, what's it character, you know, uh, it's Boris. A pretty, it's a pretty intense... It's uh, pretty intense. Yeah. He's, like, you know, sh- killing people and shooting darts out of his hand and crap. I mean, you know, it's, it's insanely violent. And yet the kind of violence that really gratifies me in movies, they so rarely do. It's that those great cathartic release moments of just pure righteous vengeance. You just don't get those moments very often in movies. And I can name two. Two where you just sit there in the theater and you cheer. One of them is in Lethal Weapon 2. And it's not the one where he drops the cage on the dude. But is it the... Oh, I, I, wait. What? I, I know what you're talking about. Mm. It's the scene where Danny Glover's sitting on the toilet. No. And there's a bomb in the toilet. no. no. It's it's the scene where he where he slam where he kills the guy by slamming the car door on his head. That is just such an awesome moment because it's the kind of thing we've all sort of fantasized about doing to someone that we like you know if someone's threatening my family. I'll put his his head right in the right in the side, slam the car door on his head, and the body goes limp. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment of vengeful violence. And the other one is uh, is when uh, Daniel Day Lewis in the Last of the Mohicans just. Uh, just swings that axe and takes out Magua. Beautiful. Well, I'll give you two Beautiful. more. One is most of Taken. Yeah, true. Totally. And the other one is, and you, <laughs> I, I flashed on this, is... The Shake, se- shakes the Clown. Is, no. Shakes the Clown. Yes. Where, where he urinates. On Florence Henderson? On, no, where, yeah, um, where, where the kid, whatever it is. The scene in Avengers yes. when Hulk picks up the bad guy <laughs> yes. and slams him <laughs> on the okay. floor. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. But that that's cartoonish. Awesome. That was awesome. So anyway, moving on. We're spending too much time on this. All right, uh, um, Red Tails. Here's the thing with Red Tails. Uh, Wade, this was a, a film that uh, John, uh, John, 
George Lucas has been waiting for 20 years to make. And, uh, He'd probably love for it to be known as John Lucas after this uh, one. I know. And this is the result. <laughs> uh, this was directed by a guy named Anthony Hemingway. And yeah. the problem with this movie is that, first of all, it is told in way too modern a fashion. There's a lot of modern dialogue, yeah. modern acting, modern mm-hmm. delivery. And this is all about the Tuskegee Airmen, yep. uh, who deserve a great movie in their honor, of course. Uh, but they're not getting it here. This is very cornball. And it, it's, it's a weird combination. It, part of it is cornball, but part of it is very modern. And especially in the performances and the dialogue. And it really just doesn't work. Mm-mm. There was an HBO film called The Tuskegee Airmen mm-hmm. years ago. Much better. Which is much better than Red Tails. Uh, you know, obviously, because it's George Lucas and all he cares about are effects, um, the flying scenes are very energetic. But, however, they're very artificial. Yep. They really are. You know, we had talked about, uh, uh, or I had seen Wings, the first film to win the Best Picture yes, Oscar indeed. from 1927. And in, in Wings, the actors who play the aviators, the World War One aviators, they flew their own planes. And mm-hmm. you saw them. There was a camera mounted on the, on the nose of the plane looking at the actor, and the actor was flying his own GD plane. You know what? Doing it himself. Now, here in this film, it's all CGI, yes. so it looks phony, it looks artificial, and you don't get that, that's, that sense of danger knowing that the actual actor is in the plane flying but, it himself. But the actual CGI artists are flying their own planes. Yes, Doesn't that count for something? Uh, that, is, is that what they call getting stoned nowadays? <laughs> flying your own plane? Is that what they call it? Uh, anyway, it's a good-looking disc because it's all CGI. Uh, there's a couple of uh, decent uh, featurettes on it. Um, there's a uh, featurette on Terrence uh, Blanchard, the composer, who I never liked. I like Blanchard. Really? His, his score for Malcolm X is great. I, you know what? That I is don't. A great I, score. I, I, I guess I don't like a lot of his. Spiky well, he's stuff. A, he's a jazz guy. You know, yeah. I mean, his, so if he if you don't need a jazz score, but I mean, he really brings there's there's a, it's kind of jazz orchestral fusion, and and the Malcolm X score is terrific. I thought it was great. Uh, out on Blu-ray and DVD and a lovely combo disc from Disney is uh, The Secret World of Arietti. Now, this is an extremely odd, a very, very odd film because this is from Studios Ghibli, which uh, most people identify as uh, basically being the Hayao Miyazaki studio. Miyazaki produced this. He didn't direct it. He just kind of threw his name on it, threw his studio behind it. But the director, Hiramasa... Yonobayashi, or however you pronounce it, Yonobayashi, um, doesn't have the same panache, doesn't have the same vision, even though, if he did, I'm not sure the movie would be even any better, though. And that's here's what's weird. This is based on The Borrowers. Now, The Borrowers is a series of very, very famous books that were previously made into, you remember the movie The Borrowers? Mary Norton wrote the, uh, the, the novel series, and it's British. It's a British series of novels. And the whole thing takes place in England, but they're, like, reading Japanese books in places. It's a very strange kind of fusion thing. But um, The Borrowers is a story of this family who moves into this house, or they, they have this house, and there's, a, like, a family of little people, a race of little people who live underneath the house. This doesn't ring a bell? It's like a John Goodman movie. From yeah, no, the, it was, it was, uh, it it was, was directed by, uh, it might have been Peter Jackson. No, no, Peter Jackson didn't do it. No, somebody famous did The Borrowers. I'm going to find it. Well, anyway, right the live-action Borrowers did not do terribly well years ago when it was made. And uh, so it's kind of weird because I was sitting on the Disney lot watching oh, no, the Secret... Peter Hewitt. Peter Hewitt. There you go. I was watching The Secret World of Arietti, and I'm like, I don't know what this is. And it's about halfway through the movie when I turned, over, turned to Tim, and I was like, wait a minute. Have we seen this before? He goes, yeah, there was a live-action Borrowers. 
And then you kind of put two and two together because it just doesn't recall it in any way. It's a sweet film. It's uh, it's endearing in a certain way. You know, it's it's it has that quality that so many classic children's books have, where it's the discovery of the the fantastic, the uh, where you you reconcile yourself to this other world, and where somehow there's a meeting of the minds, and it teaches you about tolerance and about wonder and imagination and discovery tolerance. and all of those things. I'll but, have none of that. But but at the same time, you just kind of feel that it's a little bit tired and that anime may not be the best vehicle for this particular story. Nonetheless, uh, the Blu-ray is gorgeous. It really is gorgeous. Uh, Disney does a lovely job when they commit anything animated to Blu-ray. They really have that down. And uh, even though I think the movie is lacking and I think the, the voice talent tries hard but it sometimes goes a little bit over, Will Arnett and Amy Poehler, you know, husband and wife in real life, are, are decent. Carol Burnett is complete. Will Arnett, who, by the way, is in uh, Men in Black 3. Oh, yeah, briefly. Has a cameo in But that. Carol Burnett is ridiculous in this. She's just obnoxious, and it's, uh, it's really tragic. Carol Burnett's awesome. We love Carol Burnett. Very unfortunate. Uh, wait, speaking of unfortunate, we have The Woman in Black. This um, features Daniel Radcliffe, who mm. is, um, if he's trying to break away from the whole uh, Harry Potter thing, I don't know if this is the way to do it. It's a, it's, you know, it's not a bad gothic kind of horror film. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the newer films in the resurrection of the Hammer name. Ah, uh, yes. The Hammer line of, you yes. know, gothic horror films back in the day, of which... Um, uh, Let Me In was the sure, first, sure. directed by Matt Reeves. A terrific film that was totally overlooked, which is just bizarre to me, but there you go. Um, Woman in Black, uh, Daniel Radcliffe plays a, he's, he's a lawyer who lost his wife, and he's sent to this remote village, and there's a secret in the village, and he finds out what it is. And, uh, you know, it, this really should have been a lot worse than it is. I, I can't say it's, like, uh, amazing, but I was expecting a lot worse. Uh, again, if Radcliffe is going to break free from Harry Potter, he's going to have to do a little better than this. Um, the DVD, uh, this is the DVD, by the way, not the Blu-ray that I'm holding. The DVD, uh, features a commentary with the director, James Watkins, and the screenwriter. There's also a, uh, featurette. You know, I guess if you're a Daniel Radcliffe completist, you're going to want it. But otherwise, I think there's better uh, gothic horror films out there. But I was surprised that the film was even remotely decent, The Woman in Black. Yeah, well. And, uh, you know, Mark, I want to blow through some, uh, we got a bunch of new Miramax catalog releases from uh, Echo Bridge that I should uh, blow through right now since they are uh, now these are not Blu-rays these are not Blu-rays but this is you know Echo Bridge has uh, the license to a lot of these obscure Miramax titles that uh, you know are not going to be coming out from Lionsgate simply because they're not the A-list Miramax titles so again I find that always interesting to see what a lot of this is stuff you know we've completely forgotten about like a very 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 young Renee Zellweger in Shake, Rattle and Roll and uh, she's good in many ways, much better than she is in a lot of the stuff she's doing now because she just doesn't have the weight, the burden of being such a huge star to, to kind of carry along. This was made in 1994. She was nobody at the time and directed by Alan Arkush. Remember Alan Arkush, Rock and Roll High School? Yeah, Rock and Roll High School. Yeah. He was cool. Alan Arkush, you know, I mean, he, a real. He, he had a moment. He had a moment. He did. And uh, this is a cute little film. It's not bad. It's, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's a little bit of a low-budget snapshot of when uh, rock was, you know, rock and roll was taking the world by storm and taking America by storm. And uh, she, of course, is this, you know, she's the young girl who has to somehow step out of her shell and embrace this and uh, become who she's going to be. Uh, not a great film, but you know what? In her, I mean, since most of us have never seen this, I thought it was, uh, it was kind of a nice little revelation. 
Uh, Judy Garland, Me and My Shadows, otherwise known as Life with Judy Garland, Me and My Shadows. This is uh, features the amazing, amazing performance as Judy Garland by Judy Davis. Um, this was a television production, and uh, I'm, I didn't know that it was part of the Miramax Library until it arrived, and that I found really fascinating. This was nominated for a ton of Emmy Awards, and it won five of them. And uh, including one for Judy Davis, and she really is amazing. I, I, you know, Judy Garland is such an iconic figure that with her, you know, she had her own show and she made tons of television specials and movies and albums. And how do you even how do you even begin to portray somebody like that realistically without it looking like a total, complete, just weird drag queen imitation? And somehow she does it. Judy Davis she just great. nails it. You she know, nails it. It's just so good. She had a uh, she had a, a relatively extended moment, Judy Davis. Yeah, yeah. Like maybe the late '80s, early '90s, maybe. Well, it started primarily in uh, 1984 with uh, uh, Passage to India. That's when she really yes. kind of appeared. And she got an Oscar nomination for that and, uh, of course, didn't win. But uh, no, She did a couple of uh, Woody Allen films, Deconstructing yeah. Harry yeah. and, um, you know, I, Hus- Husbands and Wives, which yeah. is a great Woody Allen film, totally awesome. overlooked with an amazing performance from Sidney Pollack. She was in Barton Fink. She definitely had a moment, and I think yeah. she's kind of gone now a little bit. I'm not sure what she's doing, but, uh, you know, we do love her. And then also out, a film that had a nice little moment as well, Italian for Beginners, which was directed by Lone Scherfig before she went on to do uh, an education. And, uh, you know, who she's now like, I mean, she got, a, you know, an education was nominated for Best Picture the same year as Hurt Locker. There were two women nominated for, uh, for Best uh, Picture. Well, unfortunately, uh, she, after that, she went on to do that horrible, uh, uh, what was that called again, that ridiculous? Uh, yeah, it wasn't It wasn't bad. I actually kind of No, it was a uh, One Day. Yeah, it was okay. <sighs> It wasn't, wasn't. I mean, it's not good, but it's not. It's not. It's, a it's not what you want her to. No, true. Follow up but, education uh, with Italian for beginners was her was her kind of big breakthrough, and it's not terribly well shot. I mean, it's really grainy and edgy and and a little bit sloppy. But you know what? It uh, it, it it captures a certain Italian magic and a certain sense of low budget indie romance, and it's got a certain European flair to it. And uh, I thought it was fine. And uh, the only thing that that I'm not fond of is the fact that it was formerly a dogma film. So uh, that's a little that was a little disappointing. I'm glad that she's veered away from dogma because I think her style is better suited to uh, other things, to more polished films. Uh, Pastime is a little baseball movie that uh, also had kind of a moment. And um, Mark and I actually have something of a history with this film because the uh, the guy who co-produced and um, directed it, who never made any other movies, by the way. I mean, this goes all the way back to, what, 92, 93, something like that. This guy, Robin B. Armstrong, who produced and directed it, uh, has done nothing since. Would go on to do absolutely nothing else, which is a bit ironic. And Now, the story here is, takes place in 1957, and uh, it's about a you know minor league team that signs this uh, really, really talented young uh, kid played by Glenn Plummer. And uh, it, it has a sort of a quasi-spiritual quality to it. And, Mark, do you remember we met with uh, Robin B. Armstrong once? And I don't even remember why, but it was like a house in the valley. And you and I, was it with our friend Norman? Who was with us? Somebody I, else I was have, with us. I have no memory of this. The only memory I have of this, I, I guess I have two memories. One is my, my complete confidence that it actually happened. Yeah. <laughs> but the other memory I have is you 
referring to this guy as the David Koresh of filmmaking. Well, it was your phrase. You were the one who came up with that. I did. All I remember was we, we had made the appointment for some reason. I, I can't even remember why it was or in what capacity. I think it was through a friend of ours who came with us. I don't remember if we, saw it, if we went with Norman or anybody, but we, we went there, and all I remember was it's this house in the valley, with, and we went into the office part of it, and there were all of these young guys floating around just saying, oh, you know, Robin really, really believes in doing positive-themed films, Robin this and Robin that. And it had a weird kind of culty feel to it. And it was after all of that goopy, oozy, new-agey stuff and him holding court like some kind of guru that we walked out and we're walking past an ivy-covered wall. I don't know why I remember the ivy-covered wall. And you said, that guy is the David Koresh of filmmaking. <laughs> and, of course, he's made no movie since. Which I find and, and oddly enough, neither has David Koresh. <laughs> so, see, it's all coming together. And then to uh, wrap out the uh, Miramax uh, bit, there's K2 with Michael Bean and Matt Craven, mountain climbing movie. Not bad. K2, of course, is the second tallest mountain in the world. It is uh, taller than anything other than Mount Everest. It's in Pakistan, but it is considered by many to be even harder to climb than Everest because it's got sheer cliffs and it's just psychotic. And this is a pretty good adventure movie. Actually, you know, four, four people died uh, on Mount Everest today. Oh, really? Did you read that story? No. Yeah, the four people died oh, descending awful. Mount Everest today. Great. Lame. That's terrible. Well, thanks for bumming my review of this film. But uh, Frank Rodham, another guy who had a brief but uh, fruitful career in the 80s, uh, does a very, very good job here. I think it's a better film than it uh, has been given credit for, and it's definitely worth checking out. And then lastly is this horribly misguided and misbegotten film Diamonds with Kirk Douglas and Dan Aykroyd and Jenny McCarthy and a bit of a cameo from Lauren Bacall. Uh, boy, I'll tell you, Kirk Douglas just... You know, post-stroke should not be showing up in movies. It's just not a good thing. Uh, but anyway, this is uh, from 1999, and uh, better left uh, not really considered. So that's the that's the Miramax rundown. And, uh, oh, real quickly also, as long as we're doing it, uh, there's another Eclipse uh, release from Criterion. This is Eclipse Series 33. Can't believe we're up to 33. And this uh, this is an Eclipse release that would have no reason to exist if not for the fact that Robert Downey Jr. is making $50 million off of the Avengers. And they figured, well, why not? His dad directed a bunch of crappy movies back in the day. Let's see if we can get a little juice out of that. So this is Up All Night with Robert Downey Sr., and I'm sure a lot of people don't realize that Robert Downey Sr. actually had a career as somebody somewhat marginally significant in uh, in the movies. But he did. He did. He directed a bunch of stuff, including the classic films Bobo 73, Chafed Elbows, No More Excuses, Putney Swope, and uh, Two Tons of Turquoise to Taos Tonight. None of these are in any way memorable at well, all, Putney except Swope. for Putney Swope. Yeah, that's, that's the not... one. Yeah, that's the one. That is a bit of a cult classic. And uh, because it's so much about the moment, the 60s, the 70s, the, you know, everything that was in that, that transitional moment that was, you know, about consumer culture and politics and race and all that stuff. But uh, otherwise, really not a very interesting filmmaker. That's the one that makes this, um, that makes this probably worth getting. Uh, the others are all completely negligible. So good thing his son made good because otherwise we'd have forgotten about him completely. Tis true. Wade, we have uh, two uh, movies that uh, you'll just have to pass on, but we're letting you know that they're around. One is a two-disc special edition of a, uh, a film from 1966 called uh, A Bullet for the General. Now, A Bullet for the General is part of a uh, subgenre of Western called the Zapata Western. Now, there was the, um, there's the Spaghetti Western, which is Italian, 
the Zapata Western is kind of a Mexican thing, and it's a fairly defined genre where it's a it's a Western where the bad guys kind of get you know they get rehabilitated and they become heroes in the end. And uh, the only person you will have heard of in this film is Klaus Kinski, who is not Mexican, and yet somehow he's in this film. I have to say, the Blue Underground, uh, they often do a lot of great stuff, and they did do a terrific job of um, resurrecting a bullet for the general for on Blu-ray. Uh, there's a bunch of good stuff on it. Um, I can't believe Klaus, Kis- Klaus Kinski is in this. It is just bizarre. But, um, you know, it's all about, like, the rebel general and the, the gringo who you know, brings his own mores to the, to the fight and, yada, and all that yada, kind yada. of stuff. So yeah. Bullet for the General, not great, but uh, it's an interesting uh, example of the subgenre of Zapata <laughs> Western. Uh, not a Zapata Western, but also pretty bad, is a movie called The Beyond with John Voight, Terry Polo, and Dermot Mulroney. This is about a, a search for a missing child. This is a uh, very standard police procedural type film. This is something you might see, frankly, if it wasn't for the cast, you'd see it on cable. Uh, not a fan of this film. Uh, I am a fan of John Voight, and I did. I, you know, during the during the meet the, during the the original Meet the Parents, I thought Terry Paula was uh, quite cute. But now she's gotten older, as we all have, and uh, she's not as cute. Anyway, uh, the Beyond uh, about a missing girl and this psychic who tries to find her—not that great. Totally worth, uh, totally worth passing on. I have got to recommend the Blu-ray of uh, Perfect Sense. This is—I'm stunned that this did not get any kind of a significant theatrical release. IFC Films should be ashamed of themselves. They just don't care about so many of their films. They buy, they buy these things like at fire sales, at uh, markets and festivals. And then they just do nothing with them. Uh, if if they had an ounce of sense, they would have put several million dollars into marketing this thing, putting it out of the theaters, television campaign, because this could have done really, really well theatrically. Perfect Sense is from director David McKenzie, who got totally shafted by IFC Films, and I'd be furious if I were in his, ca- in his shoes. Um, David McKenzie, of course, did Young Adam, which was a terrific film that had a kind of an NC-17 stir at the time, if you remember... Uh, with the, the, the oral sex scene between Tilda Swinton and uh, Ewan McGregor. Do you remember that whole toss-up? Indeed I do. Yeah. Uh, completely unjustified, but it was uh, it, it was a, a fuss for a moment. And David McKenzie's a very talented director, and I think this may be his best film. It is a, it is a fascinating, weird, existential romance thriller. Uh, I'd even say n- uh, near-apocalyptic, sci-fi, existential, quasi-fantasy romance thriller. Um, Eva Green, who I don't always like all that much, is very good in here. And it's a romance between Ewan McGregor and Eva Green as two people who are falling in love during this weird global epidemic that is stripping away people's uh, perceptions and senses. It's a, just a, it's a totally unusual and unconventional film. Um, not entirely successful, but incredibly beautifully shot in anamorphic widescreen. Looks gorgeous on Blu-ray. Just a sensational Blu-ray. There I give IFC some props. And, uh, it, you know, the fact that it's so ambitious, I can't, I can't help but recommend it. You know, if you're not going to buy it, at least rent it. At least, you know, it's been on VOD forever for months. But uh, the Blu-ray really is just pristine and beautiful. And you've got to check it out. Wade, with the left-field recommendation. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Uh, the Odessa File is uh, based on the uh, novel by Frederick Forsyth, uh, which was published in the early 70s. And, uh, you know, they turned it into a film. Ronald Neem, who also directed uh, The Poseidon Adventure. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. he did. 
And who, and you know what? Ronald Neem, he just died recently. Ronald Neem lived to be like well into his 90s, I'm pretty yeah, it's sure. It's like 98, 98 yeah. or 99, yeah. I'll and, look it up. I'll look it up. And uh, Poseidon Adventure, I think, is his best film. But I like The Odessa File. It's one of those, uh, you know, kind of a, you know, pulpy spy thrillery things with uh, John Voight, who we just talked about uh, starring in the otherwise forgettable The Beyond. But I did like The Odessa File. It takes place right after the assassination of JFK. And it's about the search for a uh, you know, uh, Nazi uh, SS concentration camp commander. Yes. He died in June of 2010 at the age of 99. That's bizarre. It sucks he didn't make it to 100. You got to wonder. It's like, is, is he like, let me make it to 100. Man. When you're really, I have a question about really old people. Or uh, when you're really old, do you think to yourself, I want to have another piece of cake I want to have just one more steak. I want like do you or you just you just you can't digest it anymore. You're over it. You've forgotten about it. You eat your applesauce and that's it. Do you crave things that? Do you crave foods or are you just over it? You asking me? Yeah, you're you're 98 years old. No, I'm getting there. <laughs> I don't crave anything anymore. I, I just I schlep around and you know I soil, oh that's I, not true. I soil myself and <laughs> you soil. On a regular basis. Good job. Anyway, John Voight, Maximilian Scheld, uh, Derek Jacobi. Uh, it's got a good cast. And uh, I did like this film. I did. It was called The Odessa File from 1974. And uh, it's good. It's very much, it's, uh, well, it, you know, what? It's, it's like those um, Eye of the Needle and even yeah. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. That, it's in that sort of vein. I've got a goodie and a baddie here. Uh, this goodie is, well, uh, let's start with the baddie. The baddie, the baddie features... Together again for the first time, Charlton Heston and Jean-Claude Van Damme. You never thought you'd see them make a movie together, did you? That, no, but that's a great six degrees if you need it. You can always pull it out of your butt. <laughs> you just, if you're ever playing that game, Jean-Claude Van Damme and uh, Charlton Heston together in the order. Uh, this is just one of those horribly stupid uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme movies that was made when his career was completely in decline. This is an, uh, an Avi Lerner deal from uh, Millennium. And uh, that that's a, that just means they crap this thing out. It it makes no sense whatsoever, and uh, it means to be this global thriller and have these giant geopolitical uh, ramifications. But really, it's just an excuse for uh, Jean Claude Van Damme to you know go around and and do a lot of splits, which is really all he ever does. He's a terrible fighter in movies. And then the goodie uh, on Blu-ray from Criterion is certified copy. Um, Abbas Kiarostami's film. I love this film. This is a great film. I do. I love it. It's a great. It's film. a terrific film. It's a very unconventional film, but Kiarostami uh, stepped outside of Iran to make this film in 2010, and uh, it features a performance from Juliette Binoche that it will just floor you. And I know we expect her to just be brilliant every single time, but Mark, come on, is this not like one of the best things she has ever done? I think it's great. This She's film, just amazing. Play, this film plays tricks on you. You don't know whether the couple is, are they a couple? Are they not a couple? Are they playing yeah. a game? Are they breaking up? Are they even together? And the guy who plays the, uh, the lead guy, he's never been in a, he, the, the guy who plays the lead, he's like an opera singer. He's never been in a film. I know. And he's, he's pretty, he's, He's his acting is a he, he's a William, little he's a little green William Schimmel yes isn't uh, it yeah a, a little green mm-hmm. but but very commanding yeah no it's wonderful and uh, it is a great transfer sensational DTS audio really very very just subtle sounds and very sensitively done great sound design and it also includes the 1977 film The Report by director uh, Abbas Kiarostami. And uh, it's interesting because it's 
you know, I've never seen the report, but it is, it is, and actually is similar in some respects. So he clearly, a lot of these themes he's been, you know, percolating for many, many, many years. There's an interview with Karastami and an Italian documentary on the making of the film. So it is, uh, this is a lovely, lovely Blu-ray. Great, uh, great pickup for Criterion. I'm so glad that they got it and it didn't just get, you know, crapped out there in, in, in regular uh, routine fashion. Um, you know what, Mark? I'll let you... We're going to get into some. Yes, Wade. We're going to get into some some television here in a second, but I just want to. Um, we talked about the uh, two of the Jezebel titles from uh, Kino, and uh, these should be mentioned because these are a couple of weeks old, and we should we should at least uh, point people in their direction. Girl on a motorcycle was not originally part of the Jezebel uh, library because the Jezebel library was mostly kind of you know uh, French horror and, and weird European um, exploitation stuff. Je- but Girl on a Motorcycle has somehow fallen into that library, and it's a good thing because this is a great, great transfer. Uh, Kino has really perked it up. It's out on DVD and on Blu-ray. I highly recommend the Blu-ray, directed by Jack Cardiff, one of the all-time great uh, British directors of his era. This is from 1968 and features a totally cool and groovy pairing of uh, French star Alain Delon and Marianne Faithful. And uh, Marianne Faithful, you know, had had that moment when she was one of the hot things. And uh, this is just one of the coolest, swinging, groovy 60s pairings you will ever see. Uh, it's a little bit like a... I don't want to compare it too much to Breathless, but there's, there's, a, there's a touch of Breathless in this. And uh, it really is a, a slick, cool film, totally representative of the era. And uh, what I had forgotten was it was actually based on a novel. And uh, Les Reed does the music, totally of the era, really cool. Um, just highly recommend it. Definitely check it out on Blu-ray. It's just a, you know, such a swinging film. And uh, King Vidor's Bird of Paradise is also out. Uh, this is from the Kino Classics uh, Selznick collection, which uh, you got to get on, on Blu-ray. It's DVD and Blu-ray, but there's just no other way to, to even consider looking at this other than on Blu-ray. Uh, made in 1932, one of a very early period. This is kind of a pre-code film. Nothing in it that's particularly pre-code, but it is a pre-code film technically. Uh, and beautifully, beautifully shot. One of the great King Vidor films of all time. And, uh, you know, it's an, it's an adventure film. Uh, but it's an adventure romance. Very kind of... Um, you can see that it, how this inspires a lot of other films that are going to uh, come thereafter. A very young Joel McRae, uh, not quite at his, his peak movie star abilities, but uh, very compelling just the same. Dolores Del Rio, a name that's kind of vanished and shouldn't because she was just terrific in her day. So really, you've got to check this out. This is a wonderful lost gem, Bird of Paradise, really, really worth looking at from uh, the Selznick Collection from Kino, which I hope we get a lot more of. Oh, Wade, I have something cool. Dean Martin Variety Show. Now, a Time Life, make fun of Time Life if you will. But sometimes they really unearth some great old TV shows. Yeah, they do. And the Dean Martin show, Dean Martin, of course, was with you, was the, you know, some say the best of the Rat Packers. I loved Sammy, but some people like Dean. Other people love Frank. We all love Frank. But I'm just saying that let's say Frank is the favorite. Frank is everybody's favorite. I was partial to Sammy. A lot of people partial to Dean. But anyway, what people don't remember is that Dean Martin did a, uh, did a network uh, comedy show every week for like eight years. And it was a great show. It was the Dean Martin show. And this DVD set, the Dean Martin Variety Show Uncut, is a whole bunch of individual episodes of the show. And it's just great stuff. Um, 
Here's some of the celebrities who are on this uh, DVD, not Blu-ray, DVD. Buck Owens, uh, Bob Newhart, Dom DeLuise, Sid Caesar, George Goble, Jackie Mason, Buddy Epson, Zero Mostel, Tommy Toon, Leslie Uggams, great stuff. Uh, I love the Dean Martin show. It's great. Uh, I wish there was a... Um, I wish there was a featurette that would explain to people how this show came about because it's a pretty interesting story about how Dean Martin did not want to do a network show because he didn't want to have the weekly responsibility and he well he and he, he, could, he, he couldn't do movies he couldn't uh, do nightclub appearances he, you, you, but you know how the, what makes the Dean Martin show so much fun is how incredibly unprofessional it is. And, and and Dean wound up doing it because there was a guarantee that there'd be no real commitment on his part. So this is how these shows worked. Uh, and this is live telev- television at its best. Dean would basically say, hey, you know, you guys write some funny stuff and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll just I'll come in on Friday. And that was it. And, and pretty much the staff would work all week putting the sketches and the bits together with no cooperation from Dean, no input, no nothing. They would ju- he, they just would assume that it's some it's not like Saturday Night Live where they actually rehearse it. It's like they do these things and they do the run and then at some point you got to plug Dean in and then Friday like you know ten minutes before uh, the show goes live Dean comes wandering in and has no idea basically what's going to happen. He's reading right off cue cards and he just walks in and he's reading off cue cards. Really doesn't has no clue how the show is going to just roll. He's just winging it and. They are screwing up left and right, and whenever he screws up and he has to, he starts laughing and he has to rewrite the cue cards. I mean, if you think that Jimmy Fallon screwed up a lot on Saturday Night Live, if you think that Harvey Corman losing it on the the Carol Burnett show was was hilarious, no contest. Dean Martin doesn't even try to mask it; he doesn't even camouflage it, and somehow that total lack of professionalism combined combined with his charm it's makes endearing. It, it's endearing it's just irresistible there's no, nothing like it it's classic television love it uh highly recommended uh not endearing is teen wolf the complete season 1 now um mtv after destroying the american culture with uh the, whatever the hills and the, <laughs> uh, all all that all that garbage they decided that uh, they were going to go back to scripted programming and this was the first one out of the gate, Teen Wolf. This um, It airs on MTV. It reruns on Teen Nick. It's based on the movie from the mid-'80s of the same name. And uh, this show got kind of mixed notices. Um, I don't... I think it's was not really the right film, the right show for MTV to come out of the gate with in terms of scripts and programming. Not, not good. Uh but the disc is pretty good. Special features. There's a uh, deleted alternative, uh, alternate and extended scenes. There's a gag reel. There's a couple of uh, featurettes. So I'm not a big fan of this show. Um, I don't know that this is really a right fit for MTV. Although I guess, I mean, I can see why they do it because, you know, Teen Wolf fits into the whole, you know, Twilight vampire werewolf thing. So I yeah. get that. But this does not have that kind of intensity. It's To me, it was I felt it was a little bit overly dramatic overwrought even for a team thing it was kind of overwrought but um, you know it's still going all new episodes are on Mondays on MTV but uh, if you did like season one it's available on DVD and uh, lastly we're going to make mention of Hell on Wheels the AMC series a complete first season uh, on the, on Blu-ray and uh, this is coming back for another season this is you know they're, they're trying to kind of revive the western in a lot of respects even kind of quasi westerns uh, for television, uh, and I don't know how successful this is. I certainly respect the the uh, attempt. It's got a good cast. I especially always like anything that Colmini is in. Colmini is just always so much fun to watch. He just brings such a 
such a great uh, punch to everything, even when he's a, a supporting character. So we'll see how this goes, but uh, it's, a, it's a very good transfer, and AMC is, along with TNT, making a good stab at at least switching it up a little bit on television. So uh, Hell on Wheels, a little bit of a shaky, first, shaky but a very ambitious first season, and uh, let's see if we can keep that, uh, that deep, dark, cool, slick, reinvented uh, anti-hero western going for a second season. With that, Mark, I think we're, uh, we're about at the end of our rope. <laughs> we're at the end of our rope? We're at the end of our rope. So uh, I think I'm going to raid your frozen cookies. Really? Yeah. Yeah.